This podcast is sponsored by Pulse. Pulse is a rapid response service that comes to your rescue when you need help setting up or fixing a connected device. Let's say you're in your car, listening to your favorite podcast, and when you get to your destination, you get out of your car and bam, it happens. You drop your phone at the perfect angle and you smash the screen. That's when you call Pulse. Just go to the Pulse website, schedule an appointment online by phone or chat, and they will send a certified repair technician to you within 60 minutes. They use the highest quality parts and will complete your repair while you wait. Most repairs take about 20 minutes, and they cost the same thing that you would pay if you took your phone back to the place that you bought it. Pulse offers a nationwide phone and tablet repair service that you can call 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. They fix iPhones, iPads, Google Pixels, Samsung Galaxies, the works. For those of you who are listening in California, Pulse also offers device setup services. So if you're looking for help mounting a new TV, installing a connected speaker, or setting up your home alarm, a Pulse technician will help you do the heavy lifting while you sit back and relax. Need help getting your phone or tablet fixed? Want some help setting up your connected device? Go to Pulse.com. It's P-U-L-S dot com. Pulse, your rapid response service for the ups and downs of your digital life. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the second season of the A Long Road Home podcast. My name is Ben Shapiro, and I'm the host and producer of A Long Road Home. This podcast is a series of real-world stories from the people behind the apps that you use every day. Before we get started in this episode, I owe you an apology. I published the first episode of this season roughly four months ago, thinking that I would have time to edit the full season within a short period of time. As it turns out, taking on a new day job and raising a young child was a little more time-consuming than I might have expected, and here we are in 2018. So I'm sorry that it's taken me this long for you to hear how this season's story finishes, but that said, I'll be sure to have the whole story edited before I start publishing our next season. So thank you for sticking with us. So delays aside, thank you, and to refresh your memory, or for those of you who are joining us for the first time, season two of A Long Road Home is a story about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This story hits close to home for me personally because it's about Hart Bothwell, who grew up in my hometown. Hart is a singer-songwriter that grew up in an upper-middle-class suburb of San Francisco. He's dealt with an issue that has touched millions of lives across this country, opioid abuse. In the first episode of this season, Hart walked us through how he internalized his parents' complicated divorce, which sparked the social anxiety that led him both into his love for music and his experimentation with drugs and alcohol. At the end of the last episode, Hart told us about how he had enrolled at a junior college in Los Angeles, which is where he first tried Oxycontin. In this episode, we'll hear Hart tell us about how his experimentation grew into a full-fledged addiction and how that affected his relationships with his family and his love for music. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the A Long Road Home podcast, and don't worry, we've already edited the next episode, so you won't have to wait a full four months before you hear how the story ends. Here's a preview of what we'll discuss today. Because your body suddenly feels no pain, your psychological state improves. You're happy. I didn't care about whatever consequences there may be. 
I got into hip hop and started making beats. Bad relationships would make my heart just get more and more cold. The only way I've heard to get it is to go into the Tenderloin in San Francisco. It's like, come on, follow me this way, which is never a good thing. I did because sometimes it works out. Very momentarily, he knocked me out. They have that undercover car and they roll up. Oh, this can't be good because this means I'm here to stay. I really thought for a very short period of time that I was scared straight. Every cell in your body is screaming for more oxys when you're not on it. Eventually, it gets to the point where you're either high or you're looking for drugs. They worried about me, but they didn't know how to talk to me because I was hiding my life. I started stealing money from them. I didn't play my guitar, didn't make beats. So I was like, it was gone. I was gone. So let me ask a little bit more about why the feeling of Oxycontin had such a profound impact on you. Because my understanding of Oxycontin is it's supposed to be a painkiller. Yeah. But I know that a lot of people use it. Essentially, it has a psychological effect as well. Tell me tell me how that works. Well, it's a painkiller, and it doesn't have a psychological effect in the same way that like mushrooms does, where literally like you start thinking reality is something that it isn't. It's like reality stays exactly the same. But because your body suddenly feels no pain, your psychological state improves. You're happy because everything is right within your body. Similar to like after you go on a good long run and you're drinking water afterwards or something like that. It's just a great feeling. It's like euphoria. So your mind is like positive, you're upbeat. And yeah, it's not like weed either. It's different from weed. It's very just straight to the source of like what you're feeling physically and just fixes all that or covers it all up. And I had a lot of unchecked emotional pain, like just pent up inside me and my chest and shoulders. And that was just who I was, but I didn't know I carried it around. But I did because I'm like a super sensitive, introspective person. So I just, I'm not the type of person who lets things like brush off me and stuff. Like I'm learning to do that now, but traditionally I didn't do that. And so I just kept it all. And it was just a cure for all of that. So if I had to paraphrase what you're saying back, the emotional anxiety that you had that sort of started when you were a kid and sort of stuck around through the awkward high school and middle school years created physical tension. And then the Oxycontin sort of released that physical pain because you'd essentially been tense for. 20 years or 15 years or however long it is. Right, exactly. And my experiences in life would just reinforce that tenseness, that anxiety. Like my relationship experiences were just always painful because I didn't know how to handle them. And I didn't know what a good relationship was supposed to be or feel like. And so everyone I was in always ended badly. One way or another, it ended badly. And it was just like a huge misunderstanding everything. It was always that way. And it compounded the pain I felt inside for some reason. So you discover Oxycontin, which feels like a solution. Yeah. Okay. And I think I wasn't full-blown addicted right then, but I knew that this was a powerful, transformative thing. And I didn't care about whatever consequences there may be or side effects because I just felt like I was young and like, whatever, like I need to feel good. And 
this is my thing that I need to have. So I didn't really like go out and look for it the next day or anytime soon after that, but I would, anytime friends of mine would have it, I would definitely jump at the chance to take it. And every time it was like the same great feeling. So that was at the end of college. And it was, again, the same thing that happened at the end of high school, happened at the end of college where you're supposed to have done something in college and then like have a plan for your life. Like, what are you going to do for a job? And it's like, I didn't know I was supposed to do that in college. I didn't even know what I was supposed to do in college. I don't even know why I was there. And now I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. And so I'm just going to move back home to my parents' place and see what happens, or I guess. I have no plan whatsoever. Were you playing music still? I was playing music. Actually, I got into hip-hop a lot and started making beats on the computer more. And me and my friends started making some rap songs and we would get good responses. They're like really raunchy and kind of like shock value songs, like go for the big shocking thing. And then like that would make it memorable. Who are some of your influences? Well, Eminem at the time, <laughs> obviously Eminem was huge. Uh, Nas, you know, the typical guys. I was really into Wu-Tang. Ghostface was very influential. And Jay-Z, a little later I got into him and Wu-Tang was huge though. But Eminem, I think as a white dude, it was weird. Like, what am I supposed to do to rap? Like, I have nothing to say. Like, I'm not from some hood or something, or I haven't had some, like, upbringing, like lots of these great rappers talk about. Like, so yeah, I think the instinct is, oh, go for the shock value, like, and talk about partying and sex or whatever. And, like, because that's something. You're definitely not supposed to be emo. Like, that's not appealing. Or, like, that's what I was thinking. Like, if you're going to rap, like, don't be emo and talk about your relationships and stuff. Like, don't be vulnerable. Looking back now, when I was in like some of the greatest rappers, they're being incredibly vulnerable. But like, I guess I just didn't see it that way at the time. So that was kind of like what was happening. The rap hap was started happening, and bad relationships would kind of like make my heart just get more and more cold. And I think I was becoming more angry, angry towards women, like just kind of being more of a dick. Oh, like women have never been nice to me, sort of thing. I wasn't like a complete asshole, just kind of like a indignant prick that's what i was turning into something like similar to what eminem like presented himself to be in his raps i just don't give a fuck mm -hmm. that was kind of like a protection for my feelings if i just become hard emotionally i won't get hurt anymore I have to deal with it and i'll just do drugs somehow some way i'll be okay because i just didn't understand how people got through life being vulnerable is just way too hard i don't get it so, like, there has to be something. So, that was kind of the direction I was going to. And I was actually getting pretty good at making beats over time. And some of our rap songs were pretty funny, pretty good. Do you remember any of the lyrics? But yeah, but I can't say them. I don't know. This isn't going on the radio. Oh, okay. Well, my friend Sam was, like, way better. He had the funniest lyrics. One of that always sticks in my head is, I always talk to my girlfriend after sex. And if I don't have my cell phone, then I call her collect. <laughs> Anyway, it was a funny line. I get it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Just stuff like that. It's like, we're crazy people and we don't care about anybody's feelings and we do drugs. Okay. So you start making beats. Yeah. You're getting through college and then all of a sudden you got to go through another life transition. You've discovered Oxycontin and it's a casual hobby, but it's your vice of choice. Yeah. Living back in the Bay Area. It definitely doesn't start out like huge. It's just more like somebody has it sometimes and would do it. And then 
at some point it was like, oh, I have to start getting this. And apparently the only way I've heard to get it is to go into the Tenderloin in San Francisco, which was kind of scary at the time to think about. I can tell you living in San Francisco now, going in the Tenderloin to buy prescription drugs is still scary. Really? Not that I do it. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you it's probably not the safest thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I've had some bad experiences. It's weird how like you become numb to it after you keep doing it. But anyway, out of desperation and a budding addiction, I built up the courage to start doing that. So tell me about some of the experiences that you have. What sticks out in your mind? There's a few things. So like buying drugs is hard to do. There's a lot of people who don't have what you want, but they try to act like they do. So like you don't know who to trust. Sometimes people take you on wild goose chases. So if you find somebody that you trust that you know has what you want every time, like it's not going to lie to you, then you're going to be pretty loyal to them. So one time I was at a tender line and I didn't see anybody I knew, but some guy claimed to have oxys. He was a big dude. It's like, yeah, come on, follow me this way, which is never a good thing. I did because sometimes it works out. And then as I'm walking behind him, as he's leading me to where we want to do the deal. I see this couple who are a drug dealing couple and I know them and I trust them. They always come through. So I'm like, I see them and I'm like, sorry, I'm just going to go with them. To the, I say that to the other drug dealer. Say, so I'm just going to go with these guys because I like them and I know them. And he didn't like that at all. That pissed him off. And so I was like, he started yelling at me and, and I yelled back. And next thing I know, I got clocked in the face. <laughs> like it just came out of nowhere and my whole, like my mind went blank. Like it was just black. Did he knock you out? Very momentarily, he knocked me out because it was black. And then I woke up and then people were screaming. And my quote, friend drug dealers were like, get out of your heart. I was like, oh shit, walk me back to my car. Anyway, I got out of there and I hope everybody else was okay. I didn't know how it ended. It was like, those people were cool to me, though. They definitely protected me in that moment. And looking back, it should have been a very scary situation. But at a time, like, when you are in that drug-addicted state of mind, it's a one-track mind, and you'll do anything for it. And so that eliminates your fear because you're so desperate. So I wasn't really afraid. It was just more like it was shocking. But that's, like, just a memorable thing. And then a few times got arrested, and that's a huge ordeal, and it's scary. So tell me a little bit about that. You're hanging out in the tenderloin, trying to score some pills, and cops roll up. Yeah. That simple? Yeah. And they have that undercover car, and they roll up, and they see the transaction go down, and uh, the drug dealer runs one way, and it runs off, and I run too. But I kind of half-heartedly, I was like, am I really going to run from the cops? Like, I'm not I'm not used to this type of thing. I haven't done it before. So I just kind of stopped, and they approached me. And, I didn't know any of the protocol like that could help you, whatever. So I just basically like admitted everything I did. And then they arrested me and took me to jail in San Francisco on Bryant Street. I had no idea what was going to happen. They didn't tell you anything. They just like process you and get you in that orange sort of jumpsuit thing. And I was there for like a day and a half. And it wasn't that long, but it was like they don't tell you what's going to happen. I just remember there's this lady processing me. She's like, do you have any contacts? And I was like, yeah. I told her that I lived with my mom. I was like, but don't call her. And she's like, good. She doesn't deserve to hear about this or whatever. <laughs> I was like, thank God she's not going to call her mom. So that happened. And then they just left me out after a day and a half. 
So you're just sitting in the county jail with everybody they pick up Mm -hmm. and no idea how long it takes, no idea what the process is. You're just chilling on a bench next to a bunch of other people that got arrested that day? Yeah, they just like, they put you in one cell, you're there for a few hours and they put you in another, one holding cell after another. I think I was like in three and then they finally move you to the main jail. So it's like, you don't know what the hell is happening. You think each time you move, it could be a good thing and then a bad thing. When they moved me into the main jail where I had my own bunk and stuff, I was like, oh, this can't be good because this means I'm here to stay or something. And This looks permanent. Yeah. It looks like something like this is going to be really bad for me. But it wasn't. They just let me out for whatever reason. I think they just wanted to scare me. And I really thought for a very short period of time that I was scared straight. Like, I dodged a bullet. And when I got out, my friend, who was also kind of addicted picked me up and we were like, we're never going to do it again, man. And then I don't know how long after that, but it wasn't too long. It was like right back into it. It's just crazy, man. It was a different life that I was living back then. Think back now. So outside of the times when you're trying to get Oxy, are you on it all of the time? Or is it a nights and weekends? Like what's the habit and how are you able to function and what else do you do with your time well when it starts off it seems like it enhances everything so it's kind of nights and weekends or maybe once every two weeks or something that's when it starts off and it feels like oh this makes me cooler like once again similar to alcohol it just it makes me like more chill and like i can like make music better but then after a certain point you cross this line where you start doing once a week and then twice a week and then Sure enough, after a certain point, you start feeling the withdrawal effects where your body has built up a tolerance and now it's accustomed to having it. And so when it doesn't have it, it gets really a lot. You get in a lot of pain and it gets worse and worse. And every cell in your body is screaming for more oxys when you're not on it. And that scream for more just gets worse and worse. So eventually... Over the course of a few years, I got to the point where I was doing it every day, spending hundreds of dollars, probably like $500 a week on oxys. How are you funding $500 a week in drug habits? I was working at the airport at a cargo airline for a while, and it was a crazy job working graveyard shift and just work, work, work. And then I worked as a janitor in a Jewish temple in San Francisco. And so, yeah, I had money. And you're still living at home? No. At a certain point, me and my friend moved to San Francisco and got an apartment. We were kind of in it together. And we would always just like tell each other, like, oh, if we just like get jobs and get our act together, we'll be cool. And then, or like, even if like, as long as I have a job and I'm supporting myself, I can do whatever I want. And so I quit for a month. It would be hell. Then I get right back into it. And when I got back into it, it was like worse than ever. So eventually it gets to the point where like, you're either high or you're looking for drugs in life. You have no time to do anything else. Like I still went to work, but I was high most of the time. And if I was withdrawing or if I was dope sick, then I wasn't really any good at work. But the nature of my job as a janitor, I could like hide out a lot. So it got to the point where it was like, I had no money really. And every dollar I had went to buying drugs or just buying minimal amounts of food. And eventually, like, I couldn't afford to pay rent, so I moved back home. And it was, like, I was always surprised. I think my parents would just, like, wish for the hope for the best, but I'd come up with some excuse while I was moving home, and it was just kind of all right. 
So when you say home, your parents have split. So who are you actually living with? Uh, I was living with my mom because my dad moved to the East Bay. So I was living with my mom and stepdad in Burlingame. Okay. Yeah. What was your relationship with them at the time? I don't know. I think they worried about me, but they didn't know how to talk to me. And I didn't know how to talk to them. And they were always just very, as nice as they could be, buying me dinner, making me dinner, and being supportive. But just kind of like, there's this sort of like, I just remember being this detachment, like no communication. Because I was hiding my life. Do you think they knew that you had a substance problem? Or did they just think you were introverted and not sharing your life? My mom said she knew something was weird. It was very always polite and nice. And I wasn't, it was kind of like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. I was very, like on one side of things, I was always just like Mr. Nice Guy. So I think they just worried about me, but they were like, well, he's not a bad dude. So they had their own life to live. But then sure enough, I started stealing money from them and it just became out of control, the addiction. I couldn't stop it. I felt horrible about it, but at the time it felt like there was no choice. So that's what I did. Whatever loose change I could get, whatever money, any cash I could get, I would take because I needed it. So did you, you've got this, now at this point, you have a drug addiction. It owns your life a little bit. Mm -hmm. Do you still play music at all? I stopped for like two years. It was weird. It became strange. Like I didn't play my guitar. I didn't make beats. It was just there. And I always had the intention of getting back to it. And I would like attempt to do it. But then... Everything became like when I was withdrawing, I couldn't do anything. Like I physically couldn't muster the strength to do it. And then when I was high, everything was too foggy to really like focus on something like music. So I was like, it was gone. I was gone. My interests were gone. And one of the worst consequences of becoming a drug addict is you stop caring about anything about life. You forget what's so great about life to begin with. Like a sunny day is just as good as a rainy day doesn't matter. It's all the same. Anybody who's happy in your life, you can't feel happy for them. You just think they're full of shit because you've lost touch with that life force. You're just so single-minded, like getting high. That's all there is. That's the level it gets to. And then it could get even darker than it did. For a lot of people, it does. But I think for me, that was the worst where it was just like, I don't get what's so great about life anymore. What's there to love? Okay, so we're going to stop here for today. I hope that you found this part of Hart's story interesting. In our next episode, Hart is going to tell us about the circumstances that led him to face his drug addiction, his recovery, and how he rebuilt his relationships with his friends, family, and his passion for music. As always, thanks to our editor, Pano Stupis, Robert Tompkinsons from Pulse, and of course, you, our listeners. If you'd like to discuss this podcast, we've created a Twitter handle, which is Long Road Home Pod. That's at Long Road Home Pod, four words. So you can send us any thoughts or questions that you may have. And also, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a minute to rate this podcast in iTunes. We'll be back very soon with more of Heart's story. And in the meantime, take care of each other. 